This is the last of our four-week series, and this, it's been a real treat to be with you guys. Been a lot of fun, challenging, but you guys have been really encouraging and fun to be with. And so, um, next week we're starting a new series again, but today we continue God's story, enjoying Jesus through understanding Scripture. Would you stand and turn to James chapter 1, please? James chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 18. I'm going to read and then we'll pray. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you speak to us through your word. This is your story. And Father, we pray that you would apply this story. You teach us to apply it to our hearts, God. And we pray that you would do this work by your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. I wanted to do that because to get the juices flowing. Um, the first week, if you notice, we talked about um, the why. Why should we give our attention to the Word of God, to Scripture, to the story of God? The week after that, we talked about, well, what is it? What is this story? What makes it up? Last week, we looked at how to read it. How do we practically read it with the differences of language and historical content? But I think all of that is so important And yet, if we don't come to, okay, so, so what? Like, what now? How do I apply it to my life? How does the story of God apply to my life? We'll miss the whole point. I have a friend who who texted me a while ago, and and he was reading a book that we had both read, and and he finished this book about a man who uh, realized that he was living a bad story. The whole book is about story, and the essence of what makes a story, and this guy, the author, realized, I'm I'm living a bad story. Uh, For most of my life, I play it safe according to my comforts and idols of, of, of what I want. And at the end of the story, a friend of mine texted me, and he said, you know, I just finished this book, And I realized, my story sucks. How's yours doing? And I text him back an answer about the nature of the biblical story. But still I was thinking through, what what is it that makes up a, a good story? In other words, how do we apply this story to our lives? It's God's story, but then how do we apply it to our lives? Because if you're like me, and we're all in the same boat... 
most of life is not living from mountaintop to mountaintop. Great experience to great experience. And a lot of times what can happen is when we open the Bible or come to church, we, we think in terms of big things that I'm going to do in my life to live this incredible story. But let's be realistic. The most of my life is spent with crying babies, diapers that need to be changed, deadlines that are in front of me, car trouble, Weeds that continually grow because I don't have grass, just pavers in my backyard. I, my, my whole story is, is usually just, just the mundane, normal, everyday life kind of stuff. Yours is the same way. So how do we take this big story, the meta-narrative, big word, of the grand story of Scripture and apply it to our life? And James says something fascinating in this section. One word. You have to, in order to apply the story or to participate in it, you have to accept the word. Are you seriously telling me to accept? That's like a Sunday school answer. Is that all you got for me? Like, you're going to tell me to live the story. You got uh, apply the word, accept the word. I didn't say you have to read the Bible only. I said you have to accept the word. That's what James says. And so to understand this, we have to look at it in three parts. Why does he say accept the word? Why must we do it? What does it look like and how? So first of all, why must we accept the word? Or accept the story. Because it seems like a contradiction. In verse 18, James starts by saying, He chose to give us birth by giving us his true word. And then in verse 21, he says, uh, Get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word that God has planted in your hearts. What James says in verse 18 is that the nature of a Christian is that they've been born again. That's kind of a crazy term if you think about it. Because the essence of pretty much every other religion, what sets apart the Christian faith from all other world faiths or world religions is the point of salvation. See, all other world faiths and salvation methods require you to morally turn over a new leaf. To use effort to gain acceptance from the deity or the God that's put there in their scripture. The essence of the Christian faith is not turning over a new leaf. It's accepting and living out of a new life that Jesus Christ gives you by faith in him. To be born again. But what happens, the proof of someone who's been born again is what? James says in verse 18, is that you have a new relationship to the word of God. You have a whole new understanding of what formerly used to be great information is now used as, it's now your breath, it's your air, it's something that you need. Jonathan Edwards, who in the 17th century, 18th century, did uh, research work on what the essence of, of, of a revival was. He lived during the time of the Great Awakening in a place called New England, and for him, he said, out of studying all of revivals, what he saw was a few things. One, there was a, a supernatural work where people sensed the conviction of the Spirit of God over their own depravity. 
And then also, there was a new appreciation and relationship to the word of God. And so, it almost seems like a contradiction. James says, accept the word. And yet, he's also just told us, the word of God has been placed within you. It's been, verse 21, implanted, which is the only time that word is used and means that it's been placed inside of you. You have some type of knowledge of it already. It's, it's a kind of downloaded rather than acquired. So it's a contradiction almost. Why does James say to accept the word? And the answer is in verse 21 when he says, Get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word that God has planted in your hearts for it has the power to save your souls. But in verse 19, verses verses 19 through 21, it's almost as he's talking about the nature of the word and the understanding or applying the word of God, it seems like he takes this weird kind of tangent on this subject of anger. He says in verse 19, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Is he just taking a tangent from his main point? No. Because what James is saying as he points out the issue of anger First of all, what he's not saying is that anger in itself is sin. Anger is an energy. Anger sometimes is helpful when fighting for justice or the need for courage. God gets angry. Although God's anger is not sinful anger, God's anger is slow. It's just. It's oftentimes and pretty much always on behalf of others and for their good. Think about if you have a child. And that child is involved in self-destruction in some way. They even grow up and they're now, uh, they're, they're living a life of self-destruction. You're angry at the life that they're living. You're angry maybe even at the friends that are leading them into that direction. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing for a father and a mother to be protector of their children in some way. In a great way. So he's not saying that anger itself is sin, but what he speaks of here is sinful, selfish anger. And he uses anger as an illustration, I think, because we can all in some ways relate. What he talks about here is, is not the slow anger, not somebody who gets angry well, but he uses sinful anger here as blow-up anger. It's quick, it's hot-tempered, it's, self, it's selfish in nature. And I think that some of us could say, well, I don't really struggle with anger in that way. I don't really blow up. I don't really come off the handle, fly off the handle, whatever. But in some ways, you still struggle with anger. There's two different types of anger. There's blow up anger, and then there's clam up anger, where you seethe inside and you just give somebody else the silent treatment and I'm not going to talk to you. And, And in some ways, that is even more of a cowardice type of anger because in one way, I don't want to say something that would cause you to be upset at me or not like me. I'm just going to hold it inside and become bitter. Or I'm going to put you in my own form of prison and make you feel my anger. And both forms are sinful. 
And that's why he says you must receive or you must humbly accept the word implanted in you. See, as a Christian, you already have a sense of of the direction, the sense of God on the heart. You've been given new desires because you have a new nature now. Christ himself has come to reside in you. But he says this whole thing of anger problem is rooted in something entirely different. And the reason why we have to accept the word in order to live the story or to reflect the story is because of idolatry inside. This person here is not being angry over injustice done to somebody else. This person is angry because you've violated the laws not of God's kingdom. You violate the laws of my kingdom. When you cut me off or leave me out or say things that are against me, you violate the laws of my own kingdom. And to fly off the handle and become bitter is showing a sense of, I'm my own king. Taking God completely off the throne. And what he says here in verse 20, chapter, verse 20 is, it doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. God is righteous completely right. And the reason why it's, we have to accept the word, first of all, I know that this is, this is pretty much a rational term. The first thing, why do we do it? It's pretty much rational. So track with me for a second. The reason why we have to accept it is because our cultural norm, what's normative in culture and in our hearts, the way that we think that God is, is completely opposite to who he is. God is righteous and holy. And James says, your sinful anger or jealousy or outbursts of wrath does not produce the righteousness or the righteous life that God demands of you. By nature, God is righteous. We could say, the worry of man, the worry of your heart, doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. The jealousy, the covetousness in your heart and my heart doesn't produce the righteous life that God requires. The comfort idol that you hold on to, that I hold on to, that causes me, no, I don't want to accept the word. I'm going to follow my own path because that's uncomfortable what you're calling me to. Doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. The gossip of man doesn't produce the righteousness that God desires. The self-pity that we fall into feeling sorry for ourselves or wanting other people to come into our story and feel sorry for us or putting ourselves at the top. All of it is a form of idolatry. He says it's a form of not accepting the word. You've received it in your heart as a new creation of God or when you were born again. But we're always faced with this choice. Am I going to accept the authority of God's righteousness? Let me give you an example. First from my own life and then from scripture. My own life, I became a Christian at the age of 21. We all in some ways have a sense that something's not right in the human order. Something's not right in my own heart. When I became a Christian at the age of 21, I was completely blown away 
at the way that I had formerly, before I was a Christian, explained away my behavior. And I just figured, I, I mean, I'll deal with it later. Or I'm sure God understands cultural norms are different now than they were in Scripture. Some of you might be thinking that right now. First of all, to counteract that, consider the fact that cultural norms, to think that, well, well, this doesn't jive with my culture, is to put your culture as superior. Because there's a point in history where uh, if you would have said, um, God forgives those who rebel against him and turn against him, that would be completely ridiculous to that culture, to, say, an Anglo-Saxon culture. But to our modern culture, the idea of forgiveness and love and, and reciprocity, that is something that we, we can gel with. We can agree to. But standards of sexuality and the way that I spend my money, I mean, culture's different, right? No. The Bible, the story of God, it transcends culture. It goes beyond so that when I say, well, it doesn't jive with my culture, I'm putting my culture as superior and there's going to be a day, as we said the first week, where your, your grandkids will look back on your culture and be like, how primitive were they? I can't believe they believe those things. But as I look back, when I became a Christian and I looked back on how I justified my sinful anger, jealousy, lust of the flesh, lifestyle, it was often with the idea that Although I agree with the, the word of God, I don't accept the word of God. There's a big difference. Many of us in here, we agree with a lot of scripture, with a lot of the word. But right now, in areas of your sinful anger, which is selfish in nature, jealousy, idolatry, you don't accept the word. You know, when it says here, you must be slow to speak, slow to, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Do you know what spouses often say, we'll say wives often say in counseling sessions when their husbands are abusive to them? He doesn't listen to me. He doesn't listen to me. Rebelling against parents. What, what do the parents say? She doesn't, he doesn't listen to me. I mean, I swore that I would never say, did you listen to what I say? I find myself saying to my kids all the time, did you listen? Are you listening? No, why? Because you are agreeing with what I'm saying, God says, but you're not accepting it. The person that doesn't listen to the spouse, do you know why they're angry? What's the opposite of anger? It's not self-control. It's humility. And the reason why somebody is, flies off the handle and that they don't listen is because of pride. I believe that I know how best to lead my life and you are either an obstacle in my way or an object to help me get to where I need to be. And if you blow it, I blow up at you. And the nature of why we have to Except the word is because we're proud. We put ourselves at the center of our story. And that's what I told my friend that day. I said, you know, to look at it that way is to put yourself at the center of the story. And you're not at the center of the story. 
It's God's story. And Jesus is the hero. He says that, first of all, you have to humbly, humbly accept the word. Why? Because the person who blows up in anger, as his illustration, is proud. (laughs) To use a... uh, To use a scriptural illustration, Jonah was the man who knew scripture. He agreed with it. He quoted verses. The churches are filled with those of us who quote scripture and can tell you doctrine and agree with scripture. But when it comes to my life and comes in the way of what I want, I don't want it. I don't want to accept that. And when God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, he said, yeah, right. No way. He either explained it away or he split the other way. And at the end of the book, it's a, there's a, there's a, Jonah's a fascinating book to me because at the end of the book, once Jonah reluctantly obeys God's will, he's, he's agreed with it still, but he hasn't accepted it. He goes on the top of the mountain. All these people get saved by him walking through the city and saying, God's going to judge you all. And then he goes up and then they all turn, they run to Jesus. Oh my gosh, how can we repent? And Jonah's really bitter because he goes up to the top of the hill and it says that God causes this tree to grow and give him shade. And then Jonah's kind of happy. Oh, I got some comfort now. Okay, life's okay. My enemies got saved. I was, had to be nice or kind or forgive my enemy, but at least I got some comfort now. And then a worm comes and eats the tree and his shade dwindles. It's kind of like this VeggieTale Jonah version I have in my mind. And, and it says, he's so angry. And God comes to him. Conversation, I love it. He says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry right now? He says, you're dang right it's right for me to be angry right now. Because all these people are my enemies and they've gotten saved. And God says to Jonah, is it right for you to be so angry right now? When all of these people, they don't know their right hand from their left spiritually. They're so blind and you're so mad because you didn't get your way. And God comes to you this morning and says, is it right for you to be bitter right now? Is it right for you to be angry right now? Is it right for you to be worried right now? These things don't produce the righteousness of God. God's standard is different from yours and from the normative of your culture. And that's why... We're called to accept it. It's not the answer yet. We have to, a little ways to go. Not far, don't worry. But first, the reason why we have to accept it is because God is righteous. He's right. Louis C.K., who's a popular comedian right now, I read in an article, he said, uh, Something funny, and I think that we could, all, we could all in some way relate to it. He said, I have a lot of beliefs, um, and I live by none of them. 
that's just the way I am. They're, my, they're, my, they're just my beliefs. I just like believing them. They're like my little believies. <laughs> they make me feel good about who I am, but if they get in the way of what I want, I sure as heck am going to do that thing. And what we look at scripture, we agree with it. We say, they're my little believies. I, I like them. They make me feel good. But there's something that God's calling you to right now to say, are you going to agree with it or do you accept it? Now, what does it look like to accept it? James goes on in verse 21 and he says, So get rid of all filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted for it has the power to save your souls or to change, bring transformation. Verse 22, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourself. So what does it look like to do what it says? Skip down to verse 26. If you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, in other words, you're a gossiper, a slanderer, or, you know, the things that you say... You know, it's contrary to who God is. Your religion is worthless. You have little believies. But pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Now, it's interesting what James says here because James says that what it looks like, an illustration of the person that has accepted the word of God or has come under the authority of God is somebody that both has a social morality and a personal purity. These are two starkly contrasting themes in conservative and liberal churches. This is like Fox News and CNN coming together and joining hands and having a potluck. It doesn't happen. One is saying, let's care for the poor and the widows. One is saying, let's be pure and undefiled. The one who has accepted the word, it says, comes together and does both. See, Eugene Peterson says that reading the Bible, if it's, done, if it's not done rightly, can get us into a lot of trouble. We can develop our own little like, theories and our own little camps about it's all about personal purity. Keep yourself away from the world. While another camp is saying, we have to be missional and completely in the world. And both are a part of what it means to respond to the story of God. Both. And James says, an aspect of personal purity is the way we used our tongue. <laughs> our conversation so often is the proof of where we are. Jesus said, it's not what goes into your body that defiles you. It's what comes out. It's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. That shows you. Because out of the heart comes adulteries and murders and slanders. He uses anger in that case as murder. That's what's in the heart. And it's interesting that in Luke chapter 10 verse 26, a religious scholar comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher. I accept, I mean, I agree with the word of God. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What did Jesus tell him? He said, what's the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is you should love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And what was his response? He explains it away quickly. And he says, so who's my neighbor? 
Like, can we do a word study on neighbor? Can we have a Bible study a little bit more about neighbor and what that means? And what he does clearly is he depersonalizes the scriptural text. He depersonalizes the Bible because he wants to talk about the text and treat it as a thing and dissect it and look at it like an artifact and take it around and spin it around and look at it like a rock that has lifeless form. Jesus says, no, I'm telling you, love your neighbor, the one that lives next to you or the one that's around you. So instead of inviting this scholar to have a Bible study in Leviticus or Deuteronomy under a shade of an oak tree nearby, Jesus instead tells him a story of one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture, the Good Samaritan. And the guy who's in there is a man who is completely repulsive to the religious people. He's a Samaritan, not a Jew. And he says, there is a guy who when he was walking down the street, he saw a Jewish man who had been beaten and left for dead. But this guy went over there and cared for him and loved him and picked him up and took him to a hotel and washed his his wounds. And then he paid for the, the hotel fee and he paid for his doctor bills too and said, if the guy needs anything else, here's my credit card number. Let me know. I'll pay the, the rest of the payment on it. That's a man who loved his neighbor, Jesus said. So before you go on agreeing with scripture because you're a scholar and you've been in Bible study for year after year, let me tell you what it looks like in the life of an individual. It means to love somebody because you've humbly accepted the word. Now, let's be honest here. There are those of us in here that are dealing with extreme cases of we've tried to forgive that person that's wronged us, but you can't. You've tried to stop X, Y, or Z, but you can't. You've tried to be more generous, but you're not. And what you can do today is one of two things. One, you'll try harder. You'll say, okay, I guess I'm gonna, I need to try harder. I need to really now try to accept the word. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll really try to be a forgiving person. I'll really try to be more generous. I'll really try to be more pure. Or you'll despair. And you'll say, I've read the Bible. And my story sucks and I'm over it. The Bible The story of God calls you to do neither. It calls you not to now solo bootstrap a, you know, like we talked about earlier. Solo scriptura, it's kind of, you had to be there. Um, (laughs) Pick yourself up by your bootstrap, try harder, do more, be better, be good. Or just chuck it out the window. Instead, what we find here, James' suggestion is that In order to live it out, you got to take it in. In order to live it out, you've got to take it in. You've got to see something. You've got to look inside something. Then he gives this illustration in verse 22. He says, don't just listen to God's word. 
You must do what it says, otherwise you're only fooling yourself. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and you forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. What do you mean? You must see it, or you have to take it in in order to live it out. He uses this illustration, James does, or this analogy of a man who looks into a mirror, hence our beautiful art. And the man looks in the mirror, and he looks at his face intently. And maybe it would have more illustrative power if we said it was a woman that came and looked into the mirror intently. There's a lot of work that goes into that, and I appreciate it for one. And he or she looks into the mirror intently and then goes away and they forget what they look like. Now it's popular to teach this phrase, this passage, or to read it and say, well, he should have changed something. He went to the mirror and he should have changed something. Why didn't he change himself? Right, when we wake up in the morning, the first thing we say is, oh God, help. What do I need to change? But this man, it says, wasn't that he didn't go to the mirror and change something. It says, what did he do that was incorrectly? He went away and what? He forgot who he was. He forgot how he looked. And so, the reason, what it's basically saying is that we don't apply the word, we don't accept it because we forget who we are as believers in Christ. Or, to put it positively, in order to live it out, you've got to first take it in. You've got to look into the mirror. Notice he says, it uses an interesting phrase too, that he says, for if you listen to the word, or verse 25, if you look carefully into the perfect law that brings freedom, or that sets you free, the law of liberty, are you, what are you talking about? The law was meant to show that you're wrong. When God gave the law, it was designed to show the flaws. Paul says, I wouldn't have known that I was a coveter, that I coveted my neighbor's stuff or my neighbor's wife or husband if it wasn't for the fact that the law showed me. When you look into the law, it shows you the righteousness of God, the righteous standard of God. And what you realize is there's something off with me and and this one that I love. How can this possibly bring freedom? Because if you read the Bible incorrectly, it can crush you. If you read the Bible and it's primarily about you and what you have to do, it'll crush you. But James says, you've got to look in. You've got to look in the mirror and see now the essence of the perfect law. And what is the perfect law? Or what, is the ex- what, what brings freedom here? It's the one who perfectly fulfilled the law. Because you're completely unrighteous. Because you get angry. Because you've blown up. Because you've been jealous. Because you've not forgiven. Because you've not been generous. Because you've not, whatever, you put, fill in the blank. Loved your spouse. Obeyed your parents. Whatever it might be. You look into the perfect law and it changes you. 
Verse 25, James contrasts that man to the one who looks into the perfect laws of liberty. And what does he see? How could it bring liberty? Because it shows us the one who truly accepted the word. It shows us the one who lived a righteous life that God requires in verse 20. It shows me the one who accepted the word humbly but courageously. And when Jesus was tempted with power and comfort and idolatry, he quoted the word of God and said, It's written, man shall not do this or live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus Christ accepted the word on your behalf because you failed to. He was the one who was the friend of the poor in verse 26. Jesus was the one who came to the the helpless and the widows and who was the defender of justice. And Jesus was the one who was completely unpolluted and pure in his thoughts, in his heart, and in his words. He says, when you look into the perfect law and you realize he has fulfilled it, it sets you free. It brings freedom. It brings liberty. That's how you begin to enter into the story. In order to reflect it, you have to look inside of it. When Moses was told to speak to the rock in the Old Testament, in front of the people of God, God said, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock because out of it is going to come water. Moses, it says, was so angry with the people Because they were so stupid. And Moses goes to the rock and instead of speaking to it, what does he do? He starts to whack it with his cane, with his staff. And he starts to beat it and he says, you rebellious people. How long do I have to put up with you? And what does it say in the New Testament? That rock was Christ. It was a symbol of Because the New Testament authors give us the liberty to to see it as a symbol that it was Christ. The law came through Moses. But grace and truth and peace has come through Jesus Christ. And when you look deeply into the law of liberty, the one who has fulfilled the law, it brings freedom for you. It brings you joy. Now, the truth of the matter is that even on the cross, Jesus received the wrath of God. God gets angry well. As we said, it's not just fly off the handle. He doesn't throw a hissy fit. God gets angry well because he's just, because he's righteous. Do you know that before Christ fulfilling the law, God is angry at you because of your rebellion against him? But on the cross, Jesus received all of the anger of God towards you and me for our rebellion. He drank it all. Absorbed it all. Absorbed all the blows. That's why it says that rock was speaking of Christ. Now, practically it says that this person looks intently at the law of liberty. Now, that word looks intently was only used one other time and it was used of Peter when he looked into the tomb after Christ rose from the grave. And how do you think Peter looked intently into the tomb when he ran there and his savior was gone that he had betrayed and wronged and now he's missing? How do you think Peter looked around the tomb? Cursory reading, 
uh, yeah, all right. And then he split. It's kind of like we do with Scripture. He looked intently into the word of God or to in, um, into the tomb. And this says, this is how the man is to intently look at the law of God, at Scripture. The problem with me is that I forget what I read. I forget about the good news of Christ, the gospel, throughout the course of my day with the car trouble and with the, the you know, work stuff and with the drama at home or whatever it might be, I forget. So what should we do? One author says, you should take the mirror with you. You look into the mirror and you see who you are in Christ, what Christ has done that when God sees me, he sees me in his son. Jesus has covered me, but then I take the mirror with me. What does that mean? Um, my Bible reading personally began to change when I stopped seeing this as something that just words on a page and I started to pray in the words that I read. That's the essence of meditation. He's speaking here of spiritual reading, meditation. Some people will get this wrong. I mean, there's going to be conservative Christians in here who will be completely unhinged right now. Meditation, what are you talking about? I'm not speaking about an Eastern type of meditation, which the essence of that is to empty yourself, to empty your mind. The biblical form of meditation is to fill your mind and speak those words. So that in Psalm 1 it says, do you want a blessed life? Well, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly and has a right relationship towards the word, the world, but his delight is in the law of God. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He chews on it and he begins to look at it and he looks intently at it and he begins to pray those words of scripture. The Psalms and the words of Jesus are the are great to pray. Same with Joshua 1.8 when it says, study this book continually, meditate on it day and night, be sure to obey everything in it, only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. Eugene Peterson says, we meditate to become empathetic with the text. We move from being critical outsiders to becoming appreciative insiders. The text is no longer something to be looked at with cool and detached expertise, but something to be entered into with the playful curiosity of a child. It's the difference between information and transformation, transformative reading, where I begin to look intently into the law of God, say the Psalms, and I start by reading a verse, and for instance, um, this is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. And I can start to repent and say, God, I'm so sorry that I tend to see the things that you do or the things that happen in my life as an object of complaint. I repent of my complaining. Help me to see that the things that you do you're the one who's in control, in charge. That's the nature of meditation. It's not just Bible reading and it's not just praying. It's somewhere in the middle. 
And that's how you can begin to take it with you and to chew on it. And I said that we have to take it in so that we can live it out. And that's really the nature of a story. The nature of a story, the ultimate, is to see this as the ultimate story. A story is always about redemption or some type of ransom where the character's put into some form of trouble and it takes some hero from the outside to come into their world and free them. And as a result, they're never, they're never the same again. They're always living with some sense that there's something bigger out there. There's something grander out there, something greater. That begins to free you. That begins to make you into a generous person, a forgiving person, as you humbly accept the word. We have to see that the main character is not you or me. The hero is Jesus in this story. And the situations that you're going through in life right now are all opportunities for you to reflect that story, but you're only going to reflect it if you accept it. And you only accept it if you see it. Michael Horton, I'll close with this quote. He says, The Bible is a grand story from Genesis to Revelation with Christ as the lead character. The more we hear that story, the more we find ourselves being written into it as characters. We discover ourselves not in the fading scripts of this age or in glossy magazine images, but in the story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. We are there with Adam and Eve, capitulating to the lie. We're there with Abraham and Sarah, hearing and believing the gospel and being justified. We're walking along with the disciples, not getting it, then getting it, then not getting it, and sometimes not getting it at all. He says, and then really discovering what this journey was all about. And we're there with the company of heaven, worshiping the Lamb. It's the purpose of reading and sacrament, what we're going to do right now, to put us there, to kill our dead in character and to write us into God's script. That's beautiful. We enter the story. We apply it by accepting it. But you only accept it as you look deeply into it. You look into the mirror. That God accepts you through the blood of Christ. That he's, that he's freed you. That he's for you. That you're in Christ's righteous life. And now you're free to live the righteous life of God. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for this time that we have now, Lord. We praise you that we get to, uh, through sacrament and the story of God, enter into it. Holy Spirit, fall on us, we pray, as we worship you. And I, I would encourage you here today, as you come forward and you receive the symbol of the body broken for you and the blood shed for you, that you take it as an opportunity to humbly accept the word. That means that you're not only repenting of those things that we think of as those despicable sins, but also those respectable ones that we, that we tend to fall into, that we tend to run to, like this passage. The way we use our mouth, our money, our time, treat people,
But not just repenting of those things that we've done wrong, those things that we've also done right with ill motives, not out of a sense of I'm the child of God, but trying to earn the favor of God. Let's humbly accept that truth now.